nothing to earn it, and give up everything to follow Jesus. Good morning. Good morning. I bring greetings from the saints at Tianshan Baptist Church, where my wife Iris and I are members. Um, Iris is originally from Shanghai, and we moved back here about three months ago. It's my privilege to be here this morning. Um, WSBC and SIPC have a special place in my heart. My first time to Shanghai was in 2016 for a study abroad during college, and I was a member at SIPC for about six months, right before WSBC was planted. Literally, it was the first healthy church that I was ever a part of. Mark Collins uh, discipled me, and he was really the first pastor I ever had to really pastor me. So I'm very thankful for that time. I came back to Shanghai uh, after I graduated college for a couple months and attended WSBC and was also greatly blessed by uh, the ministry of this church in my life. So I feel deeply honored to be able to bring you God's word this morning. Some of you may have seen the name Elizabeth Holmes in the news recently. Elizabeth Holmes was a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. She started her company, Theranos, in 2003, and she claimed that she had revolutionized blood testing by drastically reducing the amount of, the amount of blood needed to test for various diseases. She raised hundreds of millions of dollars. She made the Forbes Top 400 list, and by 2015, at the age of 31, she was considered the youngest and wealthiest self-made female billionaire in America. Theranos' decline, however, began, began that very year when investigations led to doubts about the company's claims. It turns out that Holmes had been lying about the ability of her supposedly state-of-the-art blood testing machines, and Theranos had knowingly given millions of patients inaccurate blood test results leading to the misdiagnosis of countless diseases. In 2018, Holmes was accused of fraud. In 2021, she was put on trial. And in 2022, she was found guilty and sentenced to 11 years in prison. She was on the news recently because she started that sentence two months ago. During her trial process, Holmes got married and had two children. Just try to imagine the next 11 years of her life, the first 11 years of her children's lives spent in prison. How tragic. 11 years of precious moments gone. 11 years of cheering from the sidelines of their sports games missed. 11 years of birthday parties in the prison visitor's room. All for some short-lived money, power, and fame. That, my friends, is a tragic 
trade. Today, I want us to consider together another tragic trade. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 15 to 30 today. If you're not used to looking up at a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 30. Marco gave me this text to preach on to pick up where you guys left off in Luke, and I've been told that the plan is for some of the brothers to continue the series, starting with the next passage in Luke. So since it's been a while since you all have been in Luke, let's review the context of our passage. Jesus' ministry is split up into two sections in Luke. It is ministry in Galilee, and his ministry during his journey to Jerusalem and the cross. Starting in chapter 9, verse 51, we see Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And by chapter 18, he has nearly completed his journey. Luke records many of Jesus' teachings and parables on his journey to Jerusalem. And in chapter 18, Luke records three stories that are particularly related to entering the kingdom of God. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, that's verses 9 to 14, and then the two that we're going to look at today, the children coming to Jesus and the rich young ruler. As I read, pay attention to the tragic trade that the ruler makes and how Luke contrasts him with the two beautiful pictures of the children coming to Jesus and the disciples giving up everything to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 30. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what's the main point of this passage? And how it's stated. The kingdom is only for those who do nothing to earn it and give up everything to follow Jesus. The kingdom is only for those who do nothing to earn it and give up everything to follow Jesus. So what does it cost to enter the kingdom? Two answers that will serve as our outline. Nothing and everything. What does it cost to enter the kingdom? First, nothing. You see that in verses 15 to 21. And second, everything. You see that in verses 22 to 30. So what does it cost to enter the kingdom? Nothing. Today, we idealize children as trusting, hopeful, refreshingly simple. But the culture of the ancient world did not attach the same sentimental qualities to children that we do today. We can see the attitude of the ancient world in the disciples' response. Look at verse 15 again. Now they were bringing even infants to them that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The disciples probably thought, surely Jesus' time and attention is much too valuable to be spent on children, much less infants. But Jesus' response is surprising. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, only those who come to Jesus like children, can enter the kingdom. We'll see throughout this passage that the, the phrases receive the kingdom, enter the kingdom, inherit eternal life, treasure in heaven, they all refer to the same reality, that is, being saved or receiving salvation. So what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God like a child? My wife Iris can attest to the fact that my Chinese language level renders me less capable than the average five-year-old for most aspects of life here. I'm guessing I'm not the only one in this room like that. Living with childlike Chinese in Shanghai does not make you hopeful or refreshingly simple, and I certainly hope it doesn't make you more trusting of people. It does, however, make you completely incapable and utterly dependent on others. This is what Jesus meant, complete dependence, having nothing to offer. So the kingdom of God belongs to those who bring nothing to earn it, who depend completely on Jesus for their entrance into it. Just like the tax collector in the previous parable who would not lift his eyes up to heaven, only those who come to Jesus like children with none of their own righteousness, recognizing the reality of their spiritual poverty, can receive the kingdom. Let me ask you, 
when you relate to God, do you recognize your own spiritual poverty before him? Or when you relate to God's people, is your spiritual poverty and dependence on Jesus before your eyes? Or do you try to put your spiritual accomplishments and maturity before theirs? After telling us about the children coming to Jesus, Luke immediately supplies us with an exact opposite example. A ruler who is blind to his own spiritual poverty and attempts to earn eternal life with his own good works and self-righteousness. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We see hints of the ruler's self-righteousness in the very first two words out of his mouth. Good teacher. Jesus' question in return, Why do you call me good? does not deny Jesus' own divinity or goodness, but instead it challenges the ruler's understanding of goodness and righteousness. The, the ruler's definition, his standard of goodness, is far too low. He considers Jesus, whom he does not acknowledge as God, as good. And as we are about to see, the ruler considers himself good too. So Jesus corrects his pathetically low standard of goodness by raising the standard all the way up to God in his perfect righteousness. Let's look at that. Jesus continues in verse 20 and 21. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. So, Jesus continues exposing the ruler's self-righteousness in verse 20 by listing five of the Ten Commandments. And as we see in the ruler's reply, the ruler considers himself righteous and blameless according to the Old Testament law. He thinks he's good, righteous before God, and therefore worthy to inherit eternal life. Jesus has exposed his self-righteousness. See, the children, they came empty-handed, dependent, offering nothing. But the ruler, he comes trying to pay his way into the kingdom with his own self-righteousness. Those who come as children know that there is nothing in themselves that they can depend on to gain an entrance into the kingdom, and that they must fully depend on Jesus. But the ruler, he comes depending on himself, unwilling to acknowledge and self-deceive about his need to depend on Jesus. So that prompts the question, why does it cost nothing to enter the kingdom? Because you cannot pay, and because you must not try. You cannot pay for your entrance into the kingdom. God is far holier than you can comprehend, and you are far more sinful than you can imagine. The sinless, mighty angels in Isaiah 6 could not even look upon God because of his perfect holiness. 
And those in the Old Testament who got too close to God without being cleansed were killed. And apart from Christ, your heart is utterly evil, opposed to God, a slave to sin. Even your best deeds are polluted by sin and count for nothing towards God's requirement of righteousness. Earlier this month, Iris uh, was visiting another sister in our church, and the sister's four-year-old son wanted to go buy ice cream. So she let him go to the ice cream shop around the corner, but he came back empty-handed and frustrated. Why? Because he tried to pay with Monopoly money. He found out the hard way that his favorite board game currency was deemed insufficient to purchase things in the real world. Trying to use your own righteousness to pay for your salvation is like trying to use monopoly money to make a real purchase or to pay a real debt. You can work as hard as you want, doing all sorts of good deeds, but even your good deeds come from a sinful heart and therefore are unrighteous according to God's standard. You not only cannot earn your entrance into the kingdom, you must not try. Trying to earn any part of your salvation disqualifies you from receiving it. Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Trying to contribute anything to your salvation shows that you don't trust Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient for your salvation, that you think you need to add some of your good works. God created us to perfectly know and reflect him, but each one of us has sinned against him. God is just, and so the just punishment for our sin is eternal punishment in hell. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless, righteous life that we were supposed to live, and he died the death that we deserve. On the cross, he took the punishment for all the sins of everyone who would ever trust him for salvation. And then he rose from the dead three days later, conquering death and giving his people new life in him. He offers to trade his righteousness for your sin, to credit his righteous life to your account. If you would repent of, that is, turn from your sins and trust in him alone for salvation. Trying to add any of your own good works to that salvation, trying to contribute any of your righteousness, like the ruler, that disqualifies you from receiving it. Only those who come with nothing to earn it can receive this gift of salvation. Salvation is God's work alone, and so he receives all the glory for it. J.I. Packer said that adoption is the great prize of salvation. So isn't it fitting that those who are to be adopted must come to God as children? To come with good works like the ruler would be more fitting of employment or servitude but to come like children with nothing to earn our acceptance, that fits God's covenant love of adoption. 
If you're, a, if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, the free gift of salvation is great news for uh, non-Christians, but I've already been saved, so does this passage really have any relevance for my life now? Let me tell you, it does. Christian, don't depart from how you were first saved. You first related to God as Father. But have you started to subtly, maybe slowly relate to him as an employer that you worry about your next performance review? If you feel particularly sinful one day, do you maybe almost subconsciously try to do good works or maybe even withhold good things from yourself to make up for your sin? If you miss your Bible reading one day, do you feel an unhealthy sense of guilt, almost as if you're less clean or less loved? Or maybe when you're in a period of consistent quiet times, victory over sin, success in life and ministry, do you feel more loved by God? Or maybe even more worthy of his love? Christian, we need to return to how we were first saved. You were saved freely, adopted unconditionally. You contributed nothing. You came to God, came to God as a child, and his child you still are. What a good father we have. Let's return to the text. We see the ritual's problem is more than just self-righteousness. He's also idolatrous and unwilling to repent. That he, that is, he's unwilling to give up everything to follow Jesus. So what does it cost to enter the kingdom? Point two. Everything. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So Jesus commands the ruler to give up everything all of his wealth, and follow him. But the ruler becomes sad. He should have been like the man in the parable who found, found the treasure hidden in the field, who in his joy sold all that he had and bought the field to enter the kingdom. But no, in sadness, this ruler made the decision, made a decision more tragic than Elizabeth Holmesy. He chose short-lived riches, over eternal life. In, in the ruler's reaction, we see his idolatry exposed. He loves his money more than God. This confirms that the ruler's claim to self-righteousness was indeed self-deception. He may have externally kept the five commandments Jesus listed, but he was breaking the very first one, the one that was foundational to all the others. But not only that, but we see because of his idolatry, he was unwilling to repent, to give up everything to follow Jesus. The God of the universe does not accept half-hearted followers. He demands our full devotion, our whole self, that we give everything over to him. The ruler loved money more than God, so Jesus demanded his full repentance. Selling all and distributing to the poor would have shown a 
our full repentance and faith in Jesus. During the first wave of COVID in America, when many people started working from home, many companies gave their employees a budget to buy supplies for their home office, like a monitor, office chair, etc. The, the things that the employees purchased with the company's money, they were actually the company's things. You couldn't just buy something you wanted and not use it for work. In the same way, everything that we have, even our very breath, is from God. And yet those who do not follow Jesus do not acknowledge this. They improperly use his gifts for their own selfish gain. But when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, Jesus becomes their new master, and all that they have, including their very self, is rightfully put under his authority. Repentance, giving up everything to follow Jesus, means giving your whole self, your whole life, to God. That means turning away from sin, giving it all up, and instead turning toward Jesus in trust and dependence. That also means taking yourself and all your idols off the throne of your life and putting Jesus on it instead, letting him rule your life. It means laying out everything you have, including your very self, at his feet to be used as he wills. Now, this in no way earns our entrance into the kingdom. Imagine a child dropping all of his toys in order to receive a huge bowl of ice cream. Dropping his toys in no way pays for the ice cream, and yet he must let go of everything if he wants to receive it. In the same way, salvation is free, and yet there is no salvation for those who do not give up everything to follow Jesus. So does Jesus require all of his followers to sell everything and give their money to the poor like he commanded the ruler? Well, no. In Acts, we see wealthy Christians not selling their wealth but using it for the good of the church. Um, and also look down at Luke chapter 19 with me, verse 8. Luke 19, verse 8, when Zacchaeus repents and follows Jesus. Luke 19, 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The point is not that Jesus requires every follower to sell everything they have and give to the poor, but that he requires us to repent and give up anything that gets in the way of us following Jesus. And further than that, he commands us to put all our possessions and our very lives under Jesus' authority to use as he Wills. Let's look at the, uh, Jesus' response to the rule's reaction. Look down at chapter 18, verses 24 and 25 with me. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A camel going through the eye of a needle is literally impossible. Jesus uses this as an intention, attention grabber, an intentionally ridiculous image to show how impossible it is for the rich 
to be saved. Jesus is highlighting the fact that there is a unique spiritual danger to wealth. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think Paul has some insights here that are helpful for our, our, our understanding of the ruler's heart problem. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's look first at verses 9 to 10. For those who desire to be rich fall into, into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Notice, Paul does warn about the love of money, but this warning is addressed to those who desire to be rich, not to the rich themselves. Yes, the ruler loved his money, but that doesn't seem to be what's ultimately behind or underneath Jesus's response. There seems to be an even deeper problem beneath the ruler's love of money. Look down at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 with me. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What is Paul's charge to the rich? Don't set your hopes on riches, but on God. The unique danger of wealth is not the love of money, for both the rich and the poor can love money. The unique danger of wealth is having a lot of money allows you to set your hope on your money instead of God. The ruler loved his money because he depended on it. It had become his God. He idolized it because he depended on it for a sense of security, power, pride. He had become its slave and it his master. It was his anchor sin that kept him tethered in place, unable to leave and follow Jesus. Ultimately, he loved his wealth because it allowed him to depend on himself instead of God. And to give up all his wealth and follow Jesus must mean that he would have to depend fully on Jesus for all his needs, which he was unwilling to do. Think about what you see when you open the banking app on your phone, or maybe what you feel when the value of your home or your investments increases. When that number goes up, or maybe even another digit is added to the end, in which direction does your heart move? Does the dependence dial of your heart move towards God or money? When the bank account is low, we more easily look to God or others for help. But as it increases, so does our self-dependence. The same self-dependence that is so contrary to how Jesus tells us we must approach him. Yes, it is good to be wise with money, and we are called to provide for ourselves and our families. But the line between wisdom with money and dependence on it is very blurry, especially when it's your own money. Be careful about which direction your heart 
disagreement. And don't necessarily think that you can assess your own motives accurately on your own. If you've never opened up your finances and your heart behind them to a trusted and mature Christian friend, I would encourage you to do so. Be transparent with them. Ask for their honest feedback. And ultimately ask them to help you depend on God more than your money. What's one of the best ways to wean your heart off of dependence on money? Give it away. Paul commands the wealthy in verse 18 to be generous and ready to share. So use your money for Jesus' purposes and depend on him instead. It's not only money that poses a danger of dependence, though. See, the ruler depended not only on his own money, but also on his own righteousness. He was self-dependent all around. I think this is the underlying theme of this passage. See, the infants depended on Jesus, not themselves, for entrance into the kingdom. The disciples gave up all they had and threw their dependence on Jesus for their daily needs and heavenly reward. But the ruler, he depended on his own righteousness and his own money. So Christian, what are you tempted to depend on instead of Jesus? Are you tempted to not depend on God for in his good design for marriage, but perhaps look elsewhere to satisfy those desires? Or perhaps honesty at work seems too costly, and so you're tempted to depend on your own cleverness with words, not on what God says about the goodness of our brightness. Or is there something in your life that you're holding on to, but you know you should give it up and depend on Jesus instead? If you aren't a Christian, how would you finish this sentence? I don't want to follow Jesus because deep down, I depend on blank. And I know I would have to give it up. To all these questions, let me just say, Jesus, the creator of the galaxies, is a trustworthy and dependable Savior. So put your hope Let's return to Luke 18, looking at verses 26 and 27. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, as Jesus, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, wouldn't the proper question in response to Jesus saying that it's impossible for the rich to be saved be, then can only the poor be saved? Wouldn't that make more sense? Why do they ask, then who can be saved? Uh, well, the general understanding from the Old Testament is that wealth was an indication of blessing and righteousness. So they were probably thinking, if this ruler and others with wealth, who have been obviously blessed by God, cannot be saved, then who can? In his response, Jesus reveals another glorious truth about salvation. What is impossible with man is possible with God. See, salvation for anyone is impossible, humanly speaking. Before being saved, each and every one of us loved sin so much that it was literally impossible for us to choose to love God more than money or self or any other idol. Christian, not only did you not contribute any good works or righteousness to your salvation, 
but even the decision itself to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus was only possible because God first changed your heart. All glory be to God, for we truly contributed nothing to our salvation. If you're not a Christian, you might be thinking to yourself right now, well, if it's God's job to change my heart first, then I guess there's nothing for me to do. But that's not how the Bible talks about receiving salvation. Remember that Jesus commanded a response from the ruler to repent and follow him. In the same way, he is calling you to put your full faith and dependence on him for salvation and to repent of your sins and give up everything to follow him. Following Jesus is costly. After all, remember where he's going. He's going to the cross. But it is gloriously worth it. Let's look at verses 28 to 30. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, that is Jesus, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In verse 28, we again see a stark contrast. The disciples doing what the ruler was unwilling to do, leaving behind everything to follow Jesus, fully depending on him. They made the miraculous decision that seeking the king and his kingdom was more valuable to them than any and everything in this world. Christian, I want to remind you again, do not depart from how you were first saved. You started your Christian life giving over everything to Jesus. So continue in your repentance. Have you started to slowly, subtly, maybe imperceptibly take back certain parts of your life for yourself? What sins have you allowed yourself to partake in or idols to entertain? Do not depart from your first love. It seems what Jesus is doing in verse 29 is picking the most valuable things in this life that his followers may have to lose for the sake of following him. House probably includes all of one's worldly possessions, and then he lists life's most precious relationships. He is not saying that we must forsake our marriage or leave our family to follow him. Rather, following Jesus is filled with trials and tribulations, and some of his followers will face particularly great costs to follow him, including up to being rejected or separated from one's very family. And yet, losing life's most precious relationships and possessions, or even life itself, for Jesus' sake, is worth it. How is it worth it? What is the reward? I have two exhortations for you. Look around and look ahead. Look around and look ahead. Jesus said that those who have given up everything for the sake of the kingdom 
will receive many times more. When? In this time. The primary reward of salvation is forgiveness, peace with God, adoption into his family. This is a present reality and already worth many times more than everything in this life. But Mark's account of this passage makes clear that part of the reward is also a new spiritual family in this life. So who is this spiritual family? Look around. Really, members of WSBC, look around you right now. You are looking at your spiritual family. These flawed and sinful, but miraculously redeemed people that you are covenanted with sitting around you are the fulfillment of Jesus' promise here. This is not an ordinary group of people sitting around you. You are literally surrounded by miracles, people who, like you, have had their hearts and their lives miraculously changed by the God of the universe. The whole Bible has been eagerly anticipating the reality of the church. In Eden, God's people were living in God's presence according to God's word, but that reality was lost when Adam sinned. Israel was supposed to be God's people living in God's presence according to God's word, but they sinned continually, broke God's covenant, and were exiled from the land. Jeremiah 31 Look forward to a day when God's law will be written on his people's buried hearts, and they would all know him from the least to the greatest. The fulfillment of that promise, the restoration of Eden, the new Israel, the new covenant, it has come to fruition here in the church. God's people living in God's presence according to God's word, imperfectly, but finally, truly. It is through the church that Ephesians 3.10 says the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And it is in this flesh and blood spiritual family around you that Jesus has fulfilled his promise here to you. Following Jesus is hard, often costing us dearly in this life. But God has given us our local church as part of our reward. Church is hard and messy. Of course it is, because none of us are fully perfected yet. But we are already truly redeemed. And so worshiping together, loving, caring, forgiving, bearing with one another, it's glorious. Members of WSBC, prioritize relationships with your fellow members who you covenant with. Prioritize this church's corporate worship gatherings in your schedule. This gathering is not just a social club or a place to make friends. This covenant community is the fulfillment of thousands of years of hopeful anticipation, the prize of our Savior's cross. So get to know your fellow members on a spiritual level. Intentionally encourage and pray for one another. Be transparent and vulnerable with each other. When following Jesus is hard, look around. Lean on your fellow church members. And when they are struggling to follow Jesus, when they must give up another precious thing in this life, come to their aid. Come by their side. And point them to your common 
Savior. Christian, don't only look around at this world, but also look ahead too. Jesus not only tells us we will receive many times more in this time, but also in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal, unending life. That is the reward for giving up the temporary things of this world to follow Jesus. As the martyr Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Treasure in heaven. That is what Jesus offers in the world. What is this treasure? What is the prize of eternal life? It is Jesus himself. He is the prize of heaven. Listen. Listen as I read Revelation 21. Listen with steadfast hope looking ahead to your reward. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And continuing in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Christian, this cost us nothing because Jesus purchased it all for us. And giving up everything to follow Jesus is hard. But look around and look ahead. It is gloriously worth it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your glorious salvation. We ask that you would help us follow your Son more closely, that you would sustain us through the trials of this life, and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus.